So let's turn to the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at chapter, Matthew, rather, chapter 18. And for the next few weeks, I want to stay on this topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Matthew 18, and we're going to be looking from verse 21. This is a well-known parable. And um, this parable um, is one that, we, at least I have, I've read it hundreds of times. And uh, it's, it's very powerful, it's very rich. What I'd like us to do in the next few weeks is dwell here for a little while, and I would encourage you on your own to reread it throughout the course of the week. So let the Word of God um, just saturate your heart and your mind as you read this passage. So from verse 21, Matthew 18, would you stand with me as we read this passage together. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his master commanded that he be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the master of that slave felt compassion, and he released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out, and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he would pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their master all that had happened. And then summoning him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are standing in your presence. We just finished reading your word. We are grateful that we can meditate on this passage together as your church, 
We ask for grace that you would enlighten us, that you would give us grace so that we would not be simply hearers of your word, but that we would go beyond being hearers to being actual doers of this word. Obedience is what you reward, Lord. God, deliver us from deceiving ourselves into thinking that just by being mere hearers, we are okay. Thank you for everyone that is here. We pray for every single one that the word of God would find place in every heart and in every mind. I pray, O oh Lord, as we just mentioned earlier, for the people who are being displaced, Lord, that you would have mercy and grace on those who are weak and those who are young and those who are elderly and those who are suffering right now. Thank you for the churches and the Christians that are there serving these people. Grant them much mercy above all else, Lord. Draw to yourself those who are still lost. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. So we're going to delve into this passage for the next few weeks on the topic of forgiveness. And in my experience, it's a topic that many Christians struggle with. I've had times in my life when I've had to forgive individuals and I was unable to do so on my own. Um, I struggled with it. So I'm speaking not only from what God's Word says, but also from experience. Now, it's easy to talk about forgiveness. It's quite another to actually forgive someone who has wronged you. There's a book entitled The Sunflower. It narrates the story of Simon Weisenthal. You may have heard of the Simon Weisenthal Institute. It's an institute dedicated to finding, at least not now as of recent, but for many years, finding former Nazis that were in hiding all over the world and to be bring them to justice. Simon Wasenthal was a Jew, and he was in a concentration camp in Mauthausen. Hopefully I pronounced that. I probably didn't. German name. And um, he was given the task of cleaning um, a barn. Uh, garbage was in this barn, so he was told, get rid of the garbage, make sure that it's fit to be an infirmary. German soldiers, Nazi soldiers, were being brought who were wounded and taken care of in this barn. And uh, while at the end of the day he was finishing up his task, uh, a nurse grabbed him and led him to a SS soldier, a young uh, SS trooper. And there he was, he had pus coming from his eyes and uh, bandaged in gauzes and he had been shot and seriously wounded. And uh, the nurse brought this Simon Weisenthal, this Jew, close to the SS trooper and the SS trooper grabbed his hand and held on to it. And Simon Weisenthal was shocked. He didn't know what to do, you know, and so he just let this, he knew he was dying, so he just let his hand be held by this young soldier. And then this man starts and asks, I need a Jew to forgive me. And Simon was listening. I've done many awful things to the Jews. I grew up in a good home, knowing the difference between right and wrong. 
But as I became a Nazi and enrolled in the Nazi army, I started to do things that are awful, horrific. He narrated how, in one occasion, there was a home filled with Jews, children, women, men, and they had set it on fire. And uh, some tried to escape from this home, and he and others shot those who were trying to escape down. He just, they just mowed them down. And Simon Weisenthal was listening to all of this. And, he, and the young man went on to say, tearfully, I just need to know that I am forgiven before I die. And Simon Weisenthal at that very moment looked at this young man and pulled his hand away. And he said, no. He got up and walked out of that infirmary. Forgiveness is the one virtue that distinguishes godly believers from the rest. At no time are we more like our Heavenly Father than when we forgive. And forgiveness is so important that it is underscored in Scripture multiple times. And this one parable underscores it for us today. Sadly, there are many Christians who have yet to forgive those who have wronged them. I know some very close to me who have chosen to take that kind of a stand. They are convinced that God is... Uh, understanding that he is not grieved when we nurse our grudges and that there really are no consequences to unforgiveness. But scriptures are very clear and nothing is farther from the truth. This parable that Jesus told his disciples um, tells us today that Jesus puts a high premium on forgiveness. And that we cannot not forgive. And as I said earlier, for the next few weeks, we're going to be dwelling on this parable. And today I want to focus on one aspect of this parable. The aspect of indebtedness. That's why I've entitled this message as part of the series, We Are Debtors. And we see the indebtedness of the main character of the Bible. But before we delve into the parable... Let's see why Jesus spoke in parables, because some of you may have that question. And indeed, what is a parable? And the answer is given in another part of the same gospel, in chapter 13, where we read from verse 10, and the disciples came up to him and said to him, meaning Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
So what we have here is Jesus giving them the reason why he spoke in parables. It was so to impart the mysteries of the kingdom to his people, his elect, who were in the crowd. The crowd was made up of those who belonged to him and those who rejected him. Those who rejected the truth of the gospel were there who seen, in other words, had eyes to see, but could not see because their spiritual sight was missing, who hearing, in other words, having um, audible hearing, could not hear because their spiritual hearing was missing. And therefore, the Lord did not want them to receive these mysteries, but these mysteries were reserved for his own. Those who belonged to God were to be experienced greater understanding, a greater truth they were to receive. The others were to experience loss because of their unbelief. The parables basically facilitated the division. With the same story, one group was pushed out and the other group was drawn in. This was the Lord's doing. Those who were Christ's are given greater light in order for them to grow in grace and truth. For the unbelieving, the parables repelled them and they were pushed farther away from him. Parables, therefore, are one of the many figures of speeches that we find in scriptures and they are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And one can spend a lifetime studying parables and always glean wonderful nuggets of truth from them. That's how rich they are. So here's Peter's question. How many times shall my brother sin against me? Because it was this question that launched the parable, right? Jesus answered with a parable. How many times? Well, I forgive him. Up to seven times. Now, why does Peter use this number? Why does he, why seven? Why not some other number? Because the Rabbis taught that if someone hurts you and you forgive him, you can forgive him again after hurting you the second time and then again the third time. But that's it. At the fourth time that this individual hurts you, you stop forgiving. And they based themselves uh, from, on that passage found in Amos where uh, these three things I have against you, in fact, four it's repeated throughout the book of Amos. And so they base themselves on that passage, which has nothing to do with forgiveness, really. And you see the understanding of the rabbi was accepted by the Jews. And so Peter, knowing that the Lord is quite magnanimous and forgiving, right? He had seen him in action, says, you know what? I'm going to up the limit to seven. But the Lord shocks Peter and the disciples with this answer. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77. And another version says up to seven times seven. And it can be rendered each way. It's, scholars are uncertain as to which way. So either way, what Jesus is saying is forgiveness is not to be limited. That must have shocked the disciples. And maybe it shocks some of us here. Now, if you're not hurt by anyone, if you uh, are one of those rare individuals that's never been wronged, of course, these words don't mean much, because, but I suspect that all of us 
at one point or another have been hurt by someone. Someone has wronged us. Someone has cheated us, defrauded us. And some hurts are very deep. Their cut has left a scar. Other hurts are not as deep. But we all know what it means to be wronged. And so when Jesus says this, he's basically saying the default mode of God's people is one of forgiveness. That's the default mode. Anything less is unacceptable. And he is stressing this. And he then goes into a parable. So why does he use this number 77? It's just hyperbole. It's a way of driving a point home. When he says, for example, if your hand offends you, cut it off. He does, it's, it's hyperbole. It's, it's an exaggeration. It's to mean be drastic with sin in your life. And in this case, be very committed to forgiveness. Nothing less. Um, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, reminds us that we, as God's people, are to be marked by agape love. An agape love that does not keep track of the wrongs we have received in life. For in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4, and then I'm reading part of it, 13, 4 and 5, love, or agape love, God's love, does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. That's what forgiveness is. Does not keep an account. Does not dwell on it. Doesn't remind himself or herself of this wrong over and over. The moment we park our lives in, a, in the parking lot called grudges, because that's the easiest thing to do, and we stay there, we are reminding ourselves over and over of the wrong we have received. So why is Jesus saying that this must be your default mode to forgive? That you are to forgive without keeping count. That your default mode must be always to forgive and not keep track of the wrong. Why? Why is he saying that you must forgive as though, as though it is your first time Forgiving, because that's how God forgives you. God does not say to any of us when we come to him for forgiveness, this is the 12,000th time that I have forgiven you. He doesn't say that. Never. Never. He forgives us fully as though we had never sinned. That's the kind of forgiveness that the Lord extends to us. And therefore, Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to be like my heavenly Father. Matthew 5, 48, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a very high, high standard, unreachable in our human strength. People sometimes say, it is difficult to forgive. No, it is not. To forgive as God forgives is impossible. That's what it is. And we need to admit that. Because otherwise, we will not turn to God for grace. We will be proud of the fact that we can forgive. And our forgiveness, at best, will be faulty, imperfect, incomplete. 
Nothing like the forgiveness that we see here in the parable. Nothing at all. We will think that we have forgiven, that we have somehow forgotten, but then we keep a distance. We don't want anything to do with them. We don't want to talk to them, but we forgive and we deceive ourselves into saying that we've forgiven them when we actually have not forgiven. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus expects. And we cannot lower the bar. We can't. Because Jesus makes it very clear. That's what I want. We will look at, therefore, this parable closely because it shows us the foundational truths that we must grasp if we are going to flesh out forgiveness. Because if we don't understand certain truths that are brought here and highlighted here, we're never going to forgive this way. Okay? So it starts with this first truth we're going to be looking at today. Indebtedness. Indebtedness. We are debtors. Mark it down in your Bibles. Mark it next to the passage. Mark it somewhere because this is crucial we understand this truth. Verse 23 and verse 24 read, For this reason the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves, and when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. The reason Simon Weisenthal and many like him are unable to forgive something as heinous as what this Nazi SS trooper did is because we don't understand this truth, our indebtedness. We don't understand this. Let me explain. In these two verses, we're immediately introduced to the system of slavery. There were many kinds of slaves in the Roman Empire. In Italy itself, one in every three was a slave. Think about that. Just one, you can, one, two, three, slave. One, two, three, slave. And on and on it goes. All over Italy. That was the center of the Roman Empire. And throughout the Roman Empire, one in every seven was a slave. And there were different kinds of slavery. There was the indentured slavery. The indentured slavery is the kind where a person owes someone else a debt, owes him money, or uh, has to pay him somehow, and he can't pay him, so he becomes indentured. He gives his service and works for that individual so that he can pay off this debt. Sometimes, because he, if he was sick, he would involve his wife and even his children, depending on the, the gravity of the debt. Chattel slavery was condemned by Scripture, but it was still very much present in, um, in the Roman Empire. Chattel slavery is what the, we're, we see as the, the slavery we have been uh, uh, taught about and, and that we've been exposed to. It's the kind of slavery where one individual goes to a far place and grabs individuals, kidnaps them, puts them on a ship, puts them on whatever, in a cart, and then hauls them somewhere else and sells them off. That's what they did with Joseph. Chattel slavery. It is clearly condemned in Scripture, and it's punishable by death uh, in the Torah. Uh, the other slavery is not condemned in Scripture, which is the indentured kind. And that is the kind we find here. Now, the one thing we must remember is just because someone is a slave doesn't mean that he suffered, right? Josephus, the famous his Jewish historian, 
was a slave for the greater part of his life, I think all of his life, yet he was a general and he was wealthy, all right? And he was a writer. He was a very educated man, uh, Josephus, and we still read his, his, his uh, books today. Daniel was a slave. He was the spoils of battle. When the Babylonians invaded uh, Jerusalem, they took the best men, the best young people. Daniel was one of them. They took him. They carried him off to Babylon. They had him change his name, his clothes. He had to learn the Chaldean language and so forth. He was a slave. He was a slave until when? Until his dying day. Daniel always wanted to go back to Jerusalem. He prayed every day with his windows open towards Jerusalem. His longing was to go back. He never went back because he was a slave. But he was a wealthy slave. He was a prosperous slave. He was an esteemed slave. They didn't treat him uh, poorly. So we have, to, we have to take those ideas that we have of slavery and just put them aside. Another well-known slave is Joseph. Joseph, yes, initially suffered, but then he became the second in command in, in Egypt. And he made Pharaoh very rich. How do we know he was a slave? When he died, he couldn't even be buried in Canaan. He had to be buried in Egypt. That's where he was buried because he was an important person in Egypt. And, but Joseph said these words. When God visits you, you take my bones out of this land. All right? Because I am not a slave of Pharaoh or anyone else. I belong to God. So that's what happened. But he was a slave all his life. Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer who served in Susa of the Persian Empire, was a slave. And he had to ask permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. Many servants of God were slaves. When Jesus is on the scene, who was a slave in his day? In the Judean, in, the Palest in Palestine. Who? Everybody. They all answered to Rome. Everybody was a slave. You think Rome asked permission? What do you think Herod could go into a city and slaughter a whole bunch of kids under the age of two and wasn't accountable to anybody? Because everybody is a slave of Rome. And Rome simply said, go ahead, take care of it. Do what you have to do. That's it. They don't ask permission. That slavery was ubiquitous. And everybody answered to Rome. Rome was the master. What we have here is not chattel slavery, as I told you earlier, but it was indentured slavery. And what we see here is that this man owed an astronomical amount. Now, it says that 10,000 talents. One talent was the wages for 20 years. So let's imagine, let's be very conservative. Let's say $10,000 a year. That's $200,000 over 20 years. So let's imagine 20, 000, uh, uh, one talent is about $200,000. And it's 10,000 talents. We're talking about $2 billion. Just <laughs> who has a debt like that? It's nobody, right? It's just, again, it's hyperbole. It's Jesus is exaggerating. Why is he saying this? There's a reason. He's driving a point home. He is saying that this man was a debtor toward this king or ruler. That God is not our debtor, but that we are his debtor. Now, many of us think that God is our debtor. This is how we pray, and this reveals if we see God as our debtor. Oh, God, why are, where are you? Does God owe us anything? 
Do I have to be in your life? Oh, God, why aren't you coming through for me? Right? These kind of words that we use. Now, God is merciful, but it's, we're thinking that God is our debtor, that we are his creditor, that he owes us. I, I, I asked you, where are you? Why aren't you coming through for me? I'm asking you for help in this area and in this area and this area. Right? And we think that God owes us. But God owes us nothing. We owe him. He doesn't owe us. God is not our debtor. And this is the first truth we must, the first truth we must understand if we're going to forgive. We don't understand this. We can't forgive. We won't. Man is God's debtor. Everything that we have, think about it, every single thing, has been given to us and ultimately belongs to God. It's in our hands only in trust. Everything. Not only is the worth of all the blessings that we've received from him of great worth, but they have been given to us from one source and one source alone, and it's God. We are not the author of all the good that we have in this world. We are simply the recipients. He's the benefactor. He's the magnanimous giver. He's the generous one, and we simply receive from his hands. Everything starts with the fact that we've been created in the image of God. That's where it starts, right? Think about it. Do I deserve to be created in the image of God? No, I don't. God chose to create me in the image of God, in his image. And then moves from that point and includes all the blessings, the ones we see, the ones we don't see. You could look at your DNA. You could look at the the minutest detail of your health. You could look at the air that we breathe, the sun that shines, the blessings you have, everything Everything has been given to you in trust by God. For this reason alone, we will stand one day before God and give an account of the blessings we received and how we used them. Whether or not we were grateful for them and used these blessings for His glory or our glory. If we use them for our glory, we expect everybody to cater to us, God included. See, David understood this truth. He understood it because in his Psalms, he reflects his understanding. For example, Psalm 103 says these words, and this is a beautiful Psalm, which has been a blessing to me many, many times. Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget any of his benefits, who pardons all your guilt, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with favor and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What is David saying? I am his debtor. I will bless him. I will thank him. God is not my debtor. I owe him. That's what he's saying. Now, if we fail to see this, 
during our lifetime, we will be confronted with this truth the moment we stand in eternity. The moment we pass to the other side, to the next world, the first thing that will shock us is that we, if we didn't see this during our lifetime, is I am God's debtor. Because every beam that will shine from the face of God will be a reminder that he has blessed us in more ways than we could ever imagine and that we were ungrateful. Ungrateful. This truth will shout at us constantly and will cause us to fall to our knees. If we, during this lifetime, do not understand that we are God's debtors and that God has been very generous with us, more ways than we could imagine, then we will see at that moment when we are in eternity how we've wasted the gifts that God has given us and the blessings we received from his hand and we will understand then why we were stubborn in our refusal to forgive. Why is this so? Why is this why are we so stubborn in our understanding of the gifts that God has given us and we think that we somehow deserve them and somehow we did something to achieve them, to have them? Because of sin. Sin that came into the world has blinded us, has blinded us to the goodness of God and has worked and wreaked its havoc in us through selfishness, Self-centeredness, wickedness, rebellion, and pride. The man in the parable is a picture of every human being. Everyone that has ever lived, except, of course, Jesus Christ, born in Adam's race. Not one of us is solvent. Not one of us has assets. Not one of us is without liabilities. Not one. Romans 3, 10 to 12, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Unless the Lord opens our eyes to see this and to understand our indebtedness towards him, we will not come to him in repentance. We will dig our heels and demand that God moves towards us and gives us what we want. And this man was highly indebted because he is a picture of every human being. We are a highly, more than we can even think, more than we can imagine, highly indebted to God. That's the first thing. But notice his incapacity to see how truly bankrupt he is. Look at verse 26. The slave, this man who owed this enormous amount, fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, before the, the master, the king, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. <laughs> Isn't that something? Have patience with me. I will repay you everything. What do you think about that? It's a remarkable Statement, isn't it? This man actually felt that he could pay this enormous debt. That he could repay what he had caused as a loss to this great king. 
Why do we think this way? Because this is the common thinking of man. And by the way, how do we repay? We repay with works. We repay through religion. Um, there are many ways. We can do good deeds. Um, I, I've encountered people who will tell me uh, about the things they do, and I said, why do you do this stuff? It's because of the wrongs I've done. And so they'll go to the uh, Welcome Hall or the old brewery mission and dedicate themselves to serving the, uh, the needy. And they do it to atone for their sins. They're wrong. So they realize that there is a wrong. There is a debt. They've done things that are wrong, but they want to atone for it on their terms. And so this is what exactly this man is saying. I, I'm going to repay you. I will. I will repay you. The debt is in the billions, but don't worry. I'll take care of it. But that's impossible. There's just no way. This man failed to understand that it was impossible to repay this unpayable debt. And we find this skewed thinking reflected in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that, that parable? Uh, once he is uh, eating uh, what the pigs are eating, um, he realizes he, it's hopeless for him. He's, he's, he's hit rock bottom, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And then he's rehearsing this line, this, this, the words he's going to say, because he's embarrassed. He realizes he wasted everything. The inheritance was given to him, and he squandered it all in riotous living. And so he's rehearsing the line that he's going to say when he sees his father. And the line is this. Luke 15, 18 and 19. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired Labors. What does that mean? Indentured slavery. That's what it means. Because I'm going to pay you off. Make me a servant in your house. I'll pay off the debt. I'm going to work it off. Of course you will. You're going to work off billions of dollars? How are you going to do that? That's, it's just ludicrous. But we think we can. I, I can make it to heaven. I, I can do it. I can make it. That's what this guy is saying here, the prodigal son. And if you remember... When finally he meets the father, he is unable to say this entire sentence. He's able to say the first part, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Then he's able to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father stops him. Get on that. He doesn't make him an indentured slave. He receives him as a son, as though he had never sinned. It's remarkable. But the fact of the matter is that in our thinking, we think we can pay him back. We are incapable of seeing that there is no possibility of paying back. So the, we are indebted, point A, point B, I can't pay him back. There's no way I can make amends. There's no way I can work this off. There's no way of all the good works and all my religion and all the sacrifices and whatever else I can think of that I can bring into this plan of redeeming myself Whatever I can bring in will not be sufficient. It's insufficient. So that's the second part. So he is indebted and he is unable to see how bankrupt he truly is. 
That's humanity. That's a picture of mankind. That's a picture of every single person. The third truth we see is the inescapable sentence that's given to him. Look at these words in verse 26. Since he did not have the means to repay, the master commanded that he be sold along with his wife and children and that all that he had and repayment be made. And as I mentioned, this is the picture of indentured slavery. So he would be sold or he would work off. Since he could not work off, he would sell them to another family who can buy them off. Whatever money you can grab from that sale, I'll take it. It will be, um, it will be to cover the debt. Obviously, he couldn't cover the full debt. So what does it mean again? It simply means that debts are not forgotten. That's what it means. Debts are not forgotten on earth. Think about it. You buy a car, and you don't pay that loan on time every month, and you skip a few payments, that loan gets, that, that car gets seized, the loan is outstanding, your credit is ruined, and you're working now to re- get back your credit. It's still the same today. And you say, but my wife and children are not sold. Your wife and children will pay for your mistakes. For example, if you, uh, I know of someone who invested poorly his money, thought he could make some uh, money from the stock market. He didn't. He lost his car, lost his house. Mistakes he made are being felt by the family, by the children and the wife. And that person is now has no credit, good credit, and he can't go buy anything. So, as God's word says in Proverbs 22, verse 7, the borrower is a slave to the lender. Right? That's the truth. That principle was then, and it's the same today. And so what you see here is because the debt was so great, and because he thought he could pay it off, the master simply says, Make sure it's old and we get whatever we can. From that moment on, this man realized he was lost. There was no way to get out of this. And so here we're reminded again of the day that there will be for all humanity the day of reckoning, the day when we stand before God the day when our indebtedness will be revealed to us in its fullest, the day when we will see that we were unable to see this indebtedness, that we were self-deceived into thinking we can pay it off. And our foolish idea that that many of you hear of today, oh, God forgives, everybody goes upstairs when they die, we're going to be in a better place after we pass away, and we say this glibly, thinking that God doesn't take into account our sins and our wrongdoings. But he doesn't wink at sin. He holds humanity accountable for all the wrongs that have been committed. Look at Psalm 50 with me. Psalm 50 speaks about God holding a day of judgment. And he speaks to the wicked, those who have spurned his law, those who have taken... um, license and sinning. To the wicked God says, this is from verse 16, to the wicked God says, what right do you have to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? 
So these are individuals that would even know God's word and God's, uh, God's ways. For you yourself hate discipline. You throw my words behind you. When you see a thief, you become friends with him. And you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue harnesses deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, notice, and I have kept silent. So God is silent. We think that because God is silent, he will never deal with it. He will wink at our sin and there's no problem. You thought that I was just like you. I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. What does that mean? There's a day of reckoning. So not only there's this great indebtedness that we have towards God, we are unable to see how indebted we truly are, and we think that we can somehow atone for some sins that we've committed. We do not understand the depths of our sinfulness, the, the depths of our corrupted nature. We don't understand how much evil we've done against this holy God. And then we think that somehow we're going to make it through that's man apart from the gospel. That's man apart from the glorious message of the cross. That's where we are. Now, when we understand this truth, our indebtedness and our inability to see on our own, and the fact that there's a day of reckoning where we were going to pay, where we we're going to stand before a holy God, this will prompt us right away to forgive because the Christian not only understands that he's indebted to God because he was created in his image and has received many blessings, but the Christian knows also that God redeemed him from his sins. So not only did he, was he created in the image of God as, as, God's pers- as God's redeemed, as God's people, but we've also been redeemed from our sins. We've been made his. Now, who, after receiving such blessings from the Lord, would turn around and say, I am not going to forgive you. The audacity of such an action, the brazen face that we can use that kind of approach with someone is only because we have not understood these truths. We have not grasped them. But once we understand this, we would not even dare do this. Now, does it mean that I will easily forgive? No. Does it mean that I will not struggle in forgiving? Yes, it means I will struggle. But I will be aware of the fact that I do not have the right not to forgive. I cannot take upon myself the choice to not forgive. I can't. Because the moment I do that, I've not understood the gospel. I have not understood the basic assumption that we, receive, we, we, we find in this parable. And we do not give him thanks for the gospel. The first foundational truth to forgiving others is this. We are God's debtors. We owe our God a great debt. And as God's people, we have been bought by the blood. And that means that we are doubly debtors. We are debtors because we've been created in his image. And debtors because we've been redeemed. Paul says, oh, nothing anyone but love. Nothing but love. You don't owe them justice. You don't owe them punishment. You don't owe them uh, some kind of vendetta. You don't owe anyone anything but love. Why? Because you are God's debtor. 
you're not their debtors, you are God's debtor. Because you are God's debtor, you are now to love others. That's the remarkable truth of the gospel. Yes, he saved us from wrath to come. He saved us from the punishment we rightly deserved. He took our sins and was nailed to the cross for us. Can I now look at someone and say, I will not forgive you? What you did is wrong? Put yourself in a situation where, and maybe you already are, where someone has wronged you. Look back on that pain. Did you take into consideration these truths that come out in this parable? Or did you just say, my hurt is so deep, I've been so wounded, I don't want to speak to that person, I don't want to see it, I don't, I don't even want to think about that moment. I remember when I was in Italy, someone very close to me hurt me deeply while growing up in Canada. And, uh, and I remember uh, singing this song, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when souls... And sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well, with my soul. And I was singing this song, and I was just joyful. I was in my little barren apartment, and I was just singing to God. And while I was singing, somehow the image of this hurt came to me, out of nowhere. I mean, who thinks about hurt when they're singing and to the Lord? And I was worshiping the Lord. Why would this particular Hurt, deep hurt, just pop up into my mind at that very moment. I understood at that moment that this was the Lord. It was the Spirit of God bringing me face to face with this hurt. And, um, and I just stopped singing. I just stopped dead in my tracks. And I understood at that moment that I had not honored the Lord with the way I had treated this man. I didn't do anything to him. I just pulled away that I had not honored the Lord. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I've not forgiven him. I am hurt by what he did to me. What am I supposed to do? Please give me grace. And it was at that moment that I realized my sinfulness. That's how God gave me grace. He showed me that had he treated me the same way that I had treated this man, I would be in hell. That there would be no way for him, for us, for me rather, to be in heaven. That I would be an outcast. That I would be pushed away. And I wept. I wept over the fact that I deserved hell. That softened my heart. And shortly after, I just simply forgave him. And the forgiveness was so real. I did that all in by the same, that same hour, by the way. When I say shortly after, I mean in that same hour. Months later, I met this man. When I met him, I ran to him and I hugged him. He was shocked. He, he didn't know whether to hug me, whether to keep his hands down. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. When we truly forgive, we honor the Lord. And we're saying, I understand. I'm indebted. I understand. I don't see the depth of my debt. I don't understand how truly bankrupt I am. 
And I understand, I deserve to be repelled and banished from your presence. And yet you welcomed me. You've loved me. You've made me your very own. You made me sit, sit in heavenly places with you. I am at your table. All of this, why? Because I'm good in some way? There's something in me that's really special? No, because he is good. He is good. What a wonderful and merciful God. That's why we need to understand the foundational truths. So that when we are face-to-face with an instance where forgiveness is required, we will not be this glib, okay, I'll forgive you, don't worry about it. Or we will not take a position, I will not forgive, it's too hurtful, I I don't want to remember this. But we will come face-to-face with the Word of God. And we'll let the Word of God act like a living sword and pierce the thoughts and the intents of the heart so that they become exposed. And then we see God at work in our lives. That's how God's Word is so powerful. We have this unpayable debt that God in His mercy has paid through His Son. He paid it. He took all of our pride, all of our selfishness, all of our sins, all of the ugliness of our soul and laid them on His Son and had His Son judged. How can we now turn to others and say, I will not? I can identify with Simon Weisenthal. I think, had I been in his shoes, I would have done the same thing. But I can tell you of another woman. Her name is Corrie ten Boom. And Corrie ten Boom went through something very similar. She too ended up in a concentration camp. And she too was uh, humiliated over and over. Her father died. Her mother died. Her sister died. Why? Not because they were Jews, because they were a pastoral family, his father was a pastor, and he was saving the Jews, hiding them in the secret chamber of his house. And someone squealed on him, and he ended up in the concentration camp in Holland. She, Corrie ten Boom, was bitter. Bitter! She could not bring herself to accept the fact that God could do this to her family. Why? Because she thought she deserved a father a mother, see, that's what it is. There's always this sense of entitlement that we have, that we have to confess. One day, she came to this understanding by God's mercy, and she understood that God was merciful, and she became a new creation. She changed. And then she went around speaking about forgiveness, because the war was over, and she survived, and she just was used by God to speak about forgiveness. And I think I shared this with you on a few occasions, where she was in church one Sunday, and she was about to speak, and she spots in the audience the man that had humiliated her over and over in the concentration camp, a German soldier, that while the women were taking showers, they would, from the balcony, some kind of stand, they would just shower the women and basically wet them all with cold water and humiliate them and laugh at them. And while she was there in that church, she remembered. These images came back to her. She just started to cry. She goes, Lord, I, I, what am I supposed to do here? I'm going to speak about you. And I just, I feel 
resentment. She was shocked by the resentment that was welling up inside. She was angry with those, that man. And she says, why is he here? And, and she began to have these thoughts, and she was so conflicted. She goes, how am I going to speak? How am I going to speak? There and then she realized what she needed to do is go back to the Word and remember, I'm indebted to my God. I'm indebted to my God. Lord, grant me the grace to forgive him. And peace filled her heart. She went up to the pulpit. She spoke. And after the gathering, she walked up to this man. And he looked at her and she says, do you remember me? And she goes, yes, I do. And she goes, my brother, I forgive you. And she hugged him. This is supernatural. This is God's mercy. It's not our own strength. We cannot do this. I would recommend you read her book. Is Simon Weisenthal's reaction normal? Absolutely. Anybody in his shoes would have done the same thing. Is Corey Ten Boom's reaction normal? No. It's supernatural. And that's where God's people stand out. That's where they distinguish themselves from the rest. And that's the fruit that God desires from us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with grateful hearts. And we thank you for your word. It's just an amazing, amazing word. And when we read it, when we ponder on these verses, we see ourselves as being inadequate. And the one voice we don't want to listen to is the voice of the enemy that says, forget this, you can never do this. We rather want to hear the voice of the Spirit that says, through Christ, I can do all things. Because he strengthens me to do all things. Father, grant us that grace. Grant your people grace today. There may be someone here who is right now facing a significant hurt. And he or she is, uh, not, doesn't know what to do with it. And it's eating them up. May you allow the words of this passage, your precious spirit, to work these words into their lives so they will experience the forgiveness that we speak of and that we read of here. Nothing human, but something that comes from you. Grant them grace, especially grant your children grace to forgive and to be people whose default mode is one of forgiveness. Deliver us from bearing grudges. Deliver us from being vindictive spiteful, delivers from all that. I pray. Thank you for once again and just imparting to us these wonderful truths. And I pray for grace, Lord, especially for those who don't know you and are perhaps here with us today or will be following online. Draw people to yourself. May they come to see who Jesus is, the Savior that saves them from the wrath to come. May they embrace Jesus readily, not because of the, the, they're able to do it, but because of your Holy Spirit that will regenerate them. May they repent of their sins and become children of God. May the cross and the message of the cross be embraced by them by faith so they will believe that they no longer can save themselves, but only one is the Savior, Jesus the Lord. May this happen all to the glory of your name. Amen.